Well, good morning again here on the second Sunday of Advent. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 John <coughs> chapter 5. Be finishing the letter today, reading verses 19 through 21. Excuse me. John writes, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. As John started to close his letter back in verse 13 here, he actually does so. This is where we will conclude our fascinating journey through this epistle. Of course, John's writings don't end. We have 2 John and 3 John, which we're also going to march through to the shortest, the two shortest chapters in the New Testament. But his address to this particular community with this particular concerns comes to an end. And it's only fitting, I would say, it's certainly not surprising, like we saw last time, that John returns to some of his primary well-worn themes and ends the epistle with a bang, in a sense, finishing where he started, proclaiming the God who's come in the flesh. Proclaiming the God who has come in the flesh. John's main point here is that Jesus is the life-giving Son of God. Don't embrace a counterfeit. It's his main point. Jesus is the life-giving Son of God. Don't embrace a counterfeit. With the first, excuse me, with the fourth we know since verse 13, John writes that we know we are from God. First part of verse 19 there. And although he doesn't explicitly use the language, the extremely important concept of being born of God is baked into the, the phrase. John's audience, those who are from God, meaning that they have been born of God, are those who have a new identity as a result. They are children of God. They have God as Father. And so immediately we just have to pause to remember. Have to pause to remember that no matter how insignificant you are, right? no matter how disappointing your life has turned out to be, no matter how much you've suffered, no matter how messed up your family is, That if you have been born again, you have God as a loving Father. And you belong. And you're seen. And you matter. You've been adopted by being born again. And because of all that, if you remember from last week, the evil one can't touch you. The evil one cannot touch you. 
Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that the evil one, that is Satan, the prince of this world, John will call him three times in his gospel, cannot affect your life in any way. As I'm not suggesting that those who are born of God somehow are inoculated from the evil schemes of the evil one. But what it does mean is that because Jesus is protecting you, he who was born of God protects you, verse 18, that your heart will be kept untouched from the lawlessness that characterizes the evil one and his children. Anomia, see last week's sermon. The very thing that results in sin leading to death. So John says that we know we are from God, and then he adds a second thing. We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we know that John uses this word world, cosmos, in a bunch of different ways. We've identified a couple of those ways. It's always determined by the context. And here, because it seems as though he is drawing a contrast between those who are from God, what follows uh, I'm sorry, he's drawing a contrast between those who are from God and kind of what follows from that and those who are in the world, it seems, and what follows from that. The whole world in this case is best understood as all of those who are in darkness, who are under the power of the evil one. They are in this particular realm. They are in the realm of darkness. Those who are from God are in the realm of light, so to speak. As such... While those who have God as father and the evil one as their father both inhabit the realm of the ruins here. This is another way in which John uses world. This realm of the ruins over which Satan is the prince, Paul is the little g god of this age. John here is talking about evil that does in fact have power over. That very much does touch and manipulate unlike those who are from God and guarded by Jesus. And so one last time here, John draws a very hard black and white line in the sand, like we've grown accustomed to him doing with his dualism. There are those who are from God, protected by God, living for God, who have God as Father. And there are those who are of the world, ruled over by and terrifyingly, honestly, in some sense, empowered by the evil one who is their father and who loved darkness. That's it. Categorically, those are the only two kinds of folks. Now, I have to confess something, and, and that, was, that is when I was studying this, preparing this sermon, it, seems, it just seemed odd to me that these two things are mentioned together. Just like they're, they seem to be given equal importance. They seem to be given equal importance. Um, and initially that might not seem odd, but have you ever had a word or phrase? I used to do this when I was a kid, a word or a phrase that you just said over and over and over until it almost sounded like you were speaking a different language or like it didn't made sense, make sense at all. And I read this verse over and over and over and over. And the more I read it, just the more the second part sticks out. Like, why is that here right here? It's right next to we know that we are from God. It seems like what he's suggesting is that we need to know both equally, even though in my experience, and certainly in yours, I would imagine, kind of the rosier of the two gets more discussion, right? Yes. 
For John, it, it appears, and it's not the first time it's appeared this way, that knowing that the world is under the power of the evil one is important. And so I was thinking as I prepare, this is one of the meditation principles that we teach when meditating on the Scripture. What happens when I lose sight of this? What happens when I lose sight that the world, those in darkness, are under the power of the evil one? And so as I was thinking about this, immediately, immediately, multiple things came to mind. When, I, when, I, when, when people lose sight of the hostile power being exercised all around us, their unity with other believers starts to weaken, and instead they go involve themselves in intramural skirmishes. Instead of having a perspective shaped by our battle is not against flesh and blood, they find people who are flesh and blood, who are also Christians, who are also born from above, and focus about everything that's not quite right about them. We're in a battle here! When I lose sight of the fact that the whole world is in the power of the evil one, that the dude dressed up as a woman next to me in the coffee shop is under the power of the evil one. You know when I lose sight of that? I lose all of my compassion and all of my prayerfulness, and all I have left is the posture of the silent scoffer. When I lose sight, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. I'm tempted to think that an effective witness can be reduced to or accomplished by better arguments or being really nice or serving people. And when I lose sight that the world is under the power of the evil one, I'm less on guard to see where my own life is being affected by the children of Satan that surround me. And I know that sounds inflammatory, but that's John's language. Those who are empowered by, as it were, Satan. So I just want to remind us, I want to remind you, just like John reminds his audience, right next to the glorious truth that we are from God is the truth that the world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil. Not simply in the misfortune of a rough upbringing or church burn. I'm sorry. I'm deeply sorry for people who have experienced that. But this is something else altogether. So do you, do you lose sight of that? I want to ask you this morning. Do you lose sight of that? When you engage the world. John continues on with his fifth. We know. In the first part of verse 20 here, he says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So in verse 19, we read that we are from God, but then he shifts. He shifts to another one who is also from God. The Son of God Himself, who has come, and He has come for us in the flesh, and has given us understanding that we might know, that we may know, sixth, know, since verse 13. Clearly John wants us to know. 
Him who is true, he says. Now, this word that John has chosen for understanding makes things very, very interesting here. Okay? Dianoia. Why is that interesting? It's interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, he never uses it anywhere else. John has a huge vocabulary. Why does he use it? You know, it's also interesting. He connects it with knowledge of God, knowing God. It sure is very odd that this is the exact word that appears in the Septuagint version, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that would have been functionally the Bible of Jesus and the disciples. It, it is very odd that it is this word that appears in the Septuagint version of Jeremiah 31-33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their dianoia, their minds, their understanding. And write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. They should not at all teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother. This is Septuagint translation here. Saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least to the greatest. John says that Jesus has come to give this particular kind of understanding leading to a particular kind of knowledge. And it's not just more facts, and it's not just having more theology. It is a personal, direct knowledge of God. It is an intimate kind of familiarity with God Himself, who has revealed Himself in the Son. That's why He's come. He hasn't merely come on a rescue from mission. He's come on a rescue to something mission. Knowledge of God, understanding as a part of a new and a better covenant. Jesus is the one who gives us this particular kind of knowledge of God. And he says, it is God, no one else or nothing else who is true. It's kind of, this is the, the masculine form is used a little bit different than the neuter form of this word. But what it suggests here when it says who is true is that he is genuine. He is the genuine God. It's the same form that's used in John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Okay? Same, same use is here. The idea is that there is one true God, and we know Him through Christ. And that's going to be very important in considering the last verse. So hold on to that one. The idea is there is only one true God, and He's been revealed in the flesh through the Christ that John has been proclaiming throughout this entire letter and that his audience has heard from the beginning. And at this point, John goes on further to what I'm sure he would be insulted to hear is considered a mostly Pauline doctrine. That is from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The very doctrine we have now spent nine weeks studying in Sunday school. Union with Christ, he says this, and we, given that we may know Him as who is true, and we are in Him, we're in Him, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's been exhorting His readers to abide, but now He tells them something about their actual status. It's not a moral exhortation, it's a status. 
You are this Christ who has come. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. And this is one of the points where I wish just I could have seen John and Paul interact. Oh, the in Christ. Union with Christ. Two, two authors who communicated the exact same gospel message, but in dramatically different ways. I mean, if you read through John's gospel and then 1 John and then turn to the book of Romans, they aren't anything alike. They are totally different styles and themes and emphasis, but they're, they all are presenting this glorious Christ, but they're doing it very differently. And Paul, one of, as, as a lot of as many of you know who've been in Sunday school, this idea of union with Christ is so, so central to the gospel and the way Paul articulates it. I've been united with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been crucified in Christ. I want to be found in Christ, loved in Christ. I'm predestined in Christ. In Christ, union with Christ. This thick concept makes makes its way into John right here. Now, of course, John might have reminded Paul, if they were to interact on this, that he's the one who said, because I live, you also shall live. Okay? So maybe he would say, you you took it from me. Of course, they're both reflecting on the exact same truth. This idea of being in Christ, it runs really deep. Nine weeks deep so far, actually. So I'm going to return to it in application. But John concludes the verse by providing a profound affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. Exactly where he started the book. So it forms what's called an inclusio, a bookend. The book starts with the divinity of Christ, ends with the divinity of Christ. So that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. Again, remember the language from the beginning. John's letter Some say that the he here is a reference to God the Father. But the closest antecedent, look down at your own text, is Jesus Christ. And the language aligns exactly with what we heard in the first part of the epistle. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Jesus is called the one who is the eternal life back there. It's the closest antecedent to the pronoun here. Antecedent meaning what comes before it, right? What he is referring to. He, he is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of deity dwells in him. He is the one who embodies eternal life. And those in him have eternal life, even as they will also have it in the future. And John closes with a famously cryptic and abrupt verse that probably felt that way when I read it. Didn't it? Didn't it seem that way? Little children, keep yourself from idols. The end. What? Idols. Where did that come from? What does John mean by idols here? 
There are over a dozen different suggestions that people have made for what John is talking about. But let me just say, they all boil down into two main camps. One is physical idols, okay? Physical idols, wood, metal, something like that. Second is conceptual, metaphorical use of the word idols. So, in, in favor of the first understanding that here John is talking about physical idols that you might find in the temple, is uh, the reality that ten other times that adalone, which is translated idol here, is used in the New Testament, it refers to physical idols. Okay, so ten other times it does refer to physical idols. Also, if John wrote from Ephesus, which he almost certainly did, then they would be plagued with temple worship to false gods all over that area. And so it would make sense. However, the second view is superior. And it is the view adopted by the vast majority of scholars for a few different reasons. First of all, let me just say the meaning of a word is not determined primarily by the lexicon, but it's determined by the context that we find a word. The rule of context is that Context rules, okay? And we have to keep that in mind, not by primary usage in, for example, Paul. Okay? John uses a lot of words differently than Paul does. Just think of the word flesh, for example. Something not so good in Paul, sinful nature. Flesh in John is just fleshiness. Christ has come in the flesh. So it's not clear that appealing to the ten other uses outside of what John is talking about in this context is going uh, to be very helpful. In wider Greek, the same word is used to mean shade, a ghost, a copy, even a phantom is sometimes translated, all suggesting the semblance of something, but not the real thing. Okay? In addition to that, you have to look at cognate words. Cognates are words that are very similar to it. So for example... In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So there's new test. He's saying covetousness is a form of idolatry. There's New Testament precedent then for this kind of metaphorical conceptual idolatry. But here's the thing. What I've just said so far is just a reason why it's permissible to understand it like this. I haven't provided any good reason for why we should actually understand it like that. So it's, a, it's allowable to understand it like this according to the Greek and according to this and that. But why would we be actually believe that this is more of a conceptual use of idol? And the singular compelling reason is we have for believing that the John is using the word idol in a non-physical way, is that it does not at all fit his entire letter, particularly these, these focused verses, the context of these final verses. Imagine what understanding this verse as a reference to physical idols would be asking us to believe. It would be asking us to believe that John, writing to a community that he is exhorting to holiness, to love, to orthodoxy, doesn't mention a stumbling block or damaging sin as idols or idolatrous temple worship once his entire letter only to bring it up in the last four words. It asks us to understand verse 21 as something 
completely foreign to the verses that immediately precede it. The verses preceding it are talking about worshiping idols and temples. There's nothing preceding it, in fact, in John's whole letter. It asks us to understand it as an island verse detached from anything that's been said, which is why the vast majority of scholars have adopted the conceptual understanding. But even so, what is that? What exactly is this conceptual or kind of metaphorical use of the word idol? I think we're prepared to, to articulate fairly clearly what it is, because if you've been paying attention over the last couple months and the last couple weeks, you'll see that a far better alternative presents itself. Here's what I believe that John is saying. Despite what you have been told, by those who have gone out from you and have shaken you. Do not buy into another Jesus. Don't buy into a Jesus if it's not the one that you heard about from the beginning. The Jesus come in the flesh Jesus. The water and the blood Jesus. The Son of God made manifest as the promised Messiah Jesus. The Jesus who made atonement for sin Jesus. The Jesus that I have proclaimed to you and you have heard about from the beginning. Do not embrace some phantom version of that. Do not embrace some lame imitation that doesn't make the same demands on your allegiance. Do not embrace some fake imitation that does not call you to love the family of God. One of the huge issues in this letter. These people who have gone out from then are not doing don't embrace a Jesus that doesn't call you to personal holiness. Don't embrace a Jesus that ultimately does not align with the one we have seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands. Because Jesus is the life-giving Son of God. Don't embrace a counterfeit Jesus. Now, as we move towards practicing the truth. I want to talk about this business of being united with Christ. This is a subject that gets me very excited, I have to confess. And I realize I will need to contain my excitement. Union with Christ involves entails living as suprahumans. Now notice, it doesn't say superhumans as much as everyone, you know, wants to be a Marvel character. I'm afraid that's not what you are. I don't, I don't mean you're bigger, better than, more than. I mean rising above or elevated. There is something elevated. There is something above about those who are united with Christ, those who are in Christ. We're born of God. We're united with Christ. And this concept is extremely central to the gospel. Extremely central to the gospel. Being in Christ is not simply flowery language, as I've a point that I have belabored in our Sunday school class. Paul describes union with Christ, the union with Christ in the church, as a husband's union with his wife. Okay? Pretty serious union going on there. And then he says, I call this a great mystery. 
there is a mysterious, mystical way in which we are united with the resurrected Christ. Christ is in us by, I have argued, don't have time to do it in this moment, by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. That is what affects, you might say, union with Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us in a mysterious but robust way that is not just poetry. And I don't know how to explain it. It is mysterious. But just because it's mysterious doesn't mean you, you default to explaining it away as a poetic flourish. We are somehow united to Christ. And as a result, we are afforded the positional benefits of Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been declared righteous. We've been justified just like the Spirit justified Jesus in His resurrection. 1 Timothy 3.16 so I just want to make a few points about living in light of union, that, that, the, the union that John mentions here. Okay? The first is, and I didn't put these points up on the screen, so you have to write them down if you want to remember them. But the first is, union with Christ involves a new identity. The astonishing reality is that everyone who goes from the world of darkness to the world of light has an identity change. And again, I don't mean literally that you stop becoming the person on your birth certificate. But I do mean that there is genuinely a change of person. We, have, we, we, we can't be anything but just arrested by, the un, by, by verses like, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. What? I'm, st I'm still here. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's an astonishing statement. That's an astonishing statement. When you think about yourself, your own self-conception, you might say, what do you think of? Because I would say that in a culture where everyone is desperate to stand out for something, at least I'm good at whatever, to hold on to some sense of self-worth, that the most impressively central facet of who you are is not unique to you at all, actually. It's that you're united to Christ. And you are having the image of God restored in you. You possess everything that comes with being united to Christ. That is far more impressive than being good at X, Y, or Z. Everyone has the image of God. But if you were in Sunday school, what you heard is not everyone's having the image of God restored in them, but Christians are. The end game is that we will bear the image of the man from heaven just like we bore the image from the man of dust, 1 Corinthians 15. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8.29. And as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You have the promise of being a co-heir with Christ. Co-heir with Christ. 
You've been raised up with, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And if that's true, no wonder Paul can say things like, we are more than conquerors. How could we be anything less? Is that how you think of yourself? Do you conceive of yourself that way? What is your self-conception? I am a what? A struggler? I'm a... What do you identify with when you understand yourself? Is it someone united to Christ? Someone who is mystically united to Christ. Someone who is supra-human. Destined to inherit the world to the glory of God. That's a new identity. That's a new identity that comes with being in Christ. The second thing I want to say is, if this is true, if we're in Christ, then John's command to be holy is justified in a new light. How I use my words and how I use my body matters if I am robustly united to Christ. How I use my words and how I use my body matters. Paul hammers his home actually in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 6 where he reminds the audience that their bodies are members of Christ and then asks them if it makes sense to take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute. If I'm united with Christ, I'm in Christ and He is in me. The hope of glory then I have the highest motivation I could possibly have to live a life of holiness. Now listen, I understand that talking about personal holiness is out of fashion these days. And one of the reasons it's out of fashion is because things have shifted from personal piety to an overemphasis on the kingdom and culture war. People are more interested about doing kingdom work whatever exactly that means to them, guarding their own heart is eh, part of it. But every, everyone is required to do this. Some people just want to put on their war paint and find the next, the next thing to fight, the next battle, the next dragon to slay. And their emphasis is shifted away from holiness in their own life. And they get more excited about pushing back against ideologies and this and that than they do with keeping their own heart. It's just so bizarre to hear people get so excited about criticizing X, Y, and Z and you look at their look into their life and they just seem to have so little concern for personal holiness. They justify their profane language. They justify the habit that they have. They justify their this and that. We're united to Christ. We are then to love and keep His commandments. It's as simple as that. I'm not saying that's the whole Christian life, but it's not less than that. People who want to go out and change the world before they're worried about cultivating their own heart, I'm sorry, you've got it backwards. You've got it backwards. And I'm not saying you can't do both at the same time. 
I think you can. But you have much more control over your life in Christ than you do of what's going on out in the world. Doesn't it stand to reason that you should spend more of your time seeing to the things that you have more control over? I would. That's my suggestion to you. A concern for personal holiness. What does my life and my heart look like? Finally, because we're united with Christ, we have the guarantee of grace. Guaranteed of grace. Those who are of God have eternal life now, but there's also eternal life that we have yet to receive. We talked about that last week. So what is it that guarantees that the folks who have eternal life now will receive it then? Answer, union with Christ. Union with Christ, the Spirit of Christ. Because I live, you also will live, John 14, 19. If we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His, Romans 6, 5. There is a link between the two. We are united with the very one who has made propitiation for our sins. He's been justified by the Spirit in the resurrection. So matter, no matter how bad that we mess up, no matter how hard we fall, nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Nothing. Christ will keep all of those the Father has given Him. He will not lose a single one of them, and therefore we have the guarantee of fresh grace. So no matter how bad you blew it this morning, or yesterday, or last week, or whatever, you aren't defined by your failures, and the, and the ceiling for your life isn't what's behind you. You have fresh grace. You are united with Christ. The image is being restored in you. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. The fresh grace, the promise of mercy and forgiveness every day. And so, let's be people who walk in that kind of grace. Who walk in light of union with Christ. Who has come in the flesh. As we keep ourselves from idols. Let's pray. God, we come to you with awareness that oftentimes we have a picture of Jesus that perhaps looks more like ourselves than the Christ proclaimed from the beginning. A Christ that makes a different level or kind of demands on our lives. Christ that's much easier to follow, perhaps. Maybe a Christ who in our eyes is just so badly distorted that it doesn't seem worth following at all in some cases. And so, God, we repent and ask, us to, ask you to renew our minds. Thank you for this understanding that Christ has given so that we can know God in a new covenant. That we can taste glory. Thank you for working in us to restore the image marred by the fall. Help us to keep our own hearts before we're about keeping anything else. And when we fail, Lord Jesus... 
Help us to remember the atoning blood of your work on the cross. Bloodshed for the redemption of sins. Fresh grace for a new day, for the next hour. And help us live in that freedom. In Jesus' name we pray.